Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is July 1st, a politically significant day in Georgia, the start of the state's new fiscal year budget, and the date that many new laws take effect. We're already halfway through a whirlwind 2019 that's seen quite a bit of political news, ranging from the nationwide conversation on abortion and reproductive rights to electoral integrity to 2020 presidential hopefuls making early overtures to Georgia voters. Well, we're going to hear from the heads of the state Democratic and Republican parties coming up on the show, so be sure to stick around for that. But first, GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler joins me in the studio to get an update on new laws and where we stand in July. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. First, let's set the tone for today's discussion. The legislature has been out of session for a couple of months now. 2020 election is not for another year and a half. Are we in a quiet period of Georgia politics? Absolutely not. There are so many things happening um, just because the legislature is not in session and because there's no immediate big election looming. There's still a lot of stuff happening from legislative study committees to campaigning for House seats, Senate seats, federal seats, things like that. So it is never a dull moment in Georgia politics. And that's why we're here today. All right. Well, today's the first day of the state's fiscal year 2020 budget, record breaking twenty seven and a half billion dollars. During his first address to the legislature, Governor Brian Kemp gave this highlight. My 2020 budget proposal includes a $3,000 permanent salary increase for certified Georgia teachers. So the new budget takes effect today. How is that changing things on the ground for teachers and other school employees? So like he said, there's a $3,000 increase to the pay of employees and other certified school teachers. And what that does is it's going in and changing the base pay. So it's not a $3,000 check. Thank you for your service. It's changing the way school districts calculate how much they should be paying their employees. And it's given to the counties for the counties to then divvy out to uh, the school system. So it's not going directly from the state government's bank account into the teacher's bank account. So it goes in that sort of school district by district case. And education is probably the top focus and thing that has changed since the beginning of 2019. We have everything ranging from laws for dyslexia training for teachers, uh, increased awareness of cardiac arrest at schools, and the beginnings of courses like computer science for students in the future. Well, lawmakers created a number of study committees during this year's legislative session. They're going to meet in the coming months to dive into some big issues and see where they can find remedies. So what's on lawmakers' to-do lists for these groups? So some of the study committees that have been created, Virginia, deal with things like e-scooters, everyone's favorite street-side <laughs> scourge. We also have some more serious issues like maternal mortality and trying to lower Georgia's rates and things like workforce housing and housing for senior living and uh, heat-related injuries are just a few of those study committees that we'll have senators and representatives looking at over the next few months. Well, I think when we hear about study committees, that sounds a little less exciting than floor debates or in big votes. But how important are these meetings to the process of making laws? I mean, is this where they really get things done or really form their opinions? Take the e-scooter study committee as an example. 
the members that are on that committee don't necessarily represent, you know, East Atlanta or the suburbs or places where people are riding these scooters, but they're the heads of some of the other committees, transportation, public safety, things like that. So study committees are a chance for leadership to really dive into these issues and figure out where laws need to be crafted or not so that then in the session when a lawmaker says, hello, I have this bill, then the study committee can say, aha, we understand this issue and how we can best apply it. So really, if you think about the legislative process of the sausage being made, these study committees are kind of the butcher shop where everything comes into to get things started. How about actual laws? I mean, what kicks in today that changes the way that people do things or can or cannot do things? Well, so today we do have the first day of the fiscal year legislative budget. Uh, We also have some things like the marriage age being raised from 16 to 17 and some requirements for emancipation there. Uh, You cannot fly drones in and around state prisons to commit crimes and drop contraband and things like that. And there's some more enumerated uh, penalties and punishments and things for crimes of things like swatting, calling in a false police alarm to something or staging a car crash or something known as sexual extortion, which makes it a crime for somebody to coerce somebody into publishing uh, nude or other intimate photos of somebody on the Internet. All right. That takes effect on July 1. But lawmakers can craft other start dates for legislation. So as we've made clear, July 1, the start date for many laws. But lawmakers can craft other start dates in legislation. Some become law as soon as they're signed. Others may start months or even a year later. As we know, the LIFE Act is due to start on January 1st of next year, but that has recently been challenged by an ACLU lawsuit. So what else are you watching that's still to come? So, Virginia, some of the things that you said that need to happen right now, right this second, take effect as soon as the governor signed it, like the school bus bill at the beginning of this session that closed the loophole of when you could pass a bus. Others take some more logistical planning and things for state agencies and other officials to figure out how it works. An example of that is AmeriCulture or, you know, growing of oysters and things on Georgia's coast. You can't just start the next day and say, all right, we're going to grow it. we got to figure out the rules. And on the court side, Virginia, what you're going to see is continue of this legal challenge that has been filed by the ACLU of Georgia. They say that the bill violates the 14th Amendment in two different ways. One, it's an abortion ban in violation of existing Supreme Court case law. And two, the personhood provision of the bill is too vague for women and doctors to know how to enforce it and how it applies. GPV political reporter Stephen Fowler, stick around. He's going to be back with us in just a little bit. But first, pundits have been saying for years that Georgia is turning purple. But so far, statewide offices remain red. Both the Democratic and Republican parties of Georgia have a tall task ahead of them before the 2020 election. They need to maintain and grow voter enthusiasm and get people to the polls. Republicans are looking to hold on to a U.S. Senate seat and regain lost ground in the suburbs. We're going to be hearing from GOP Chair David Schaefer in about nine minutes. But begin with State Senator Nakima Williams, the new chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. She spoke with GPB's Leah Fleming about her recent experiences and plans to win more seats in the legislature. We're so honored to have you. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Leah. All right. So I want to take you briefly back to that day in November when Capitol Police handcuffed you and then they removed you from the building. And I want to hear a little bit of uh, that. What, what are they charging you with? 
because I did not disperse. I did not leave the floor. The legislature is, is in a special session. We could, the Senate convened at 10 a.m. this morning. I've been here since 9 a.m. And because I didn't leave the floor when they said everyone dis must disperse, I'm being arrested. Okay. So what did that moment tell you about the Georgia that you live in, and did it set the stage for what you do these days? So that moment taught me the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I grew up in rural Alabama. I've been in Georgia since after college. And so many people in my generation feel that the things that people fought for in the civil rights movement are over and done with and we need to move on. But something as simple as standing up for our rights to vote led 15 Georgians to be jailed that day. The Capitol Rotunda should be the most protected space for free speech. But yet we were taken to jail. Mm. So have you decided to take any action against uh, So I'm working with the other people that were arrested and my attorneys, and we are highly considering civil litigation to ensure that no one feels that their right to free speech is should be something that they'll be punished for. And I want people to know that the Capitol is their Capitol. It's the people's house. And everyone should be welcome to come and voice their concerns. Mm -hmm. All right. Switching gears, according to some new analysis by the Pew Research Center, voters who identify as independents are rarely actually independent. This is what they found. They found that most independents actually lean toward one party or another. And those that lean toward Demo the Democrats, 17 percent of the total population that they found in their survey, whereas 13 percent tend to lean toward the Republican Party. And I'm wondering if you find that to be true in your experience? So I, I have found that to be true. People like to be reminded of why what a party is doing for them. It's that what have you done for me lately syndrome. And people do. They they have leanings before they um, go into the voting booth, whether they say they're a Republican, Democrat or independent. People have leanings based on what they've done in the past. And what we are doing in the Democratic Party, though, is we're making sure that we're turning out our voters. We have a lot of confused Democrats in Georgia that just don't turn out to vote. So we um, have instituted a year-round field program. Instead of starting earlier and earlier each year, we, as my grandma would say, if you stay ready, you'll be ready. And so we're going to make sure that Georgia Democrats are ready. Uh, confused Democrats, you say? Yeah, they show up to vote when they want to show up, but not necessarily um, every time we need them to show up. So we're giving we're reminding them of why they're Democrats. Mm. Speaking of issues, one of the most uh, contentious issues is right now this uh, new law that would just about ban abortion in Georgia. And I want to get your reflections on that, because there's a lot of Hollywood out there that has suggested that they will not they will pull their productions out of the state if this law does, in fact, become law in January. You know, it, there are, of course, going to be some some court, yes. you know, this is going to go to court. But if it does become law in January, they have said they're going to pull out a lot of actors, uh, film producers. Do you think that's the right way to go? I don't think that's the right way to go. I think that people need to fight with Georgia women. They need to fight with Georgia voters, and they need to help us grow our base. They need to invest in the organizations that are here fighting. And if they don't have another home to send their money, the Democratic Party of Georgia is here, and we will fight with them to make sure that their voices and their concerns are uplifted. Mm, okay. So Governor Kemp, he is just about into his first year as governor. A report card on him, if you will. So when I came into this session, what I heard on the campaign trail was people were hurting. They needed health care. And Medicaid expansion was the number one issue. And based on that being the number one issue, I give Governor Kemp a big fat F. 
because we just did something in our state that covers fewer people for higher cost by doing these Medicaid waivers. People needed health care. People were concerned. And we're even doing more by passing something like HB 481 to scare doctors and possibly criminalize them and force more doctors to come into our state when we already have 79 counties without an OBGYN. That's not leadership. That's failed leadership. And we need someone who is going to put the people of Georgia first. And he's not doing that. We live in such a a fractured time right now, uh, socially and politically. What do you think is the best way to try to unify people in Georgia to come together to at least, you know, have conversations that are meaningful? So I think having conversations. We are far too long. We are in this space where we don't even talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people who don't even believe in my humanity, and those are probably not the people that I need to be having conversations with. But there are other people who just don't even realize that you agree on so many things. And we've gotten away from that, um, and we need to have more conversations. I have family who grew up in Alabama in a very religious household, Mm -hmm. and I've had more and more conversations with my aunts and uncles, and they realize that some of the things that they once thought, they're like, oh, you might be onto something here. So I think we need to have more conversations, and that's why we're taking our program with Georgia Democrats to the doors of voters, and we're knocking on their doors and having those direct interactions with voters. Uh, You're speaking of doors. Have you been getting out around the entire state. You're, we're in Atlanta right now, but have you been making sure you get out and see and hear from people? I have been. I'm in the middle of a listening tour right now going across the state where we are going to um, my chief of staff keeps me quite busy. Sometimes I'm like, Maria, this place is, um, yeah, how are we going to get there? But we are all over the state making sure that we're listening to the concerns. I don't want to run the Democratic Party that was ran in the past. I um, have a vision to be inclusive and to bring more people into the fold and to make sure that people who have felt like they didn't have a party home have a home in our Democratic Party. And that takes going out and meeting the voters. All right. Nakima Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was State Senator Nakima Williams, chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia, speaking with GPB Morning Edition host Leah Fleming. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear the counterposition from the Republican Party of Georgia chair David Schaefer. He'll be sharing his thoughts on Governor Brian Kemp's first months in office and a lot more. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Before the break, we heard from State Senator Nikima Williams, the new chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia, sharing her party's strategy for turning out voters and trying to flip seats in next year's election. Now we're going to get the GOP view. Georgia Republican Party Chair David Schaefer spoke with GPB's Stephen Fowler. Schaefer says his party needs to be doing more to shake off the dust and match the intensity across the aisle. Let me first say that I'm very optimistic about uh, 2020. I, I do think we've become complacent during this period of time in which we've been in the supermajority in both um, houses of the General Assembly and holding all of the uh, elected statewide positions. We've allowed the party infrastructure to become weaker, which happens with any muscle that you don't use. And because we had these overwhelming majorities and the Democratic Party was not presenting a much, a, much of a challenge, I, I do think that we allowed that that infrastructure to become weaker, and we can't afford to do that going forward. The margins in the last statewide elections were were uncomfortably close, and we did lose uh, some seats in the legislature and in Congress in the suburbs of Atlanta, and we have got to, to reverse that, but I'm, I'm confident that we can do that. We've started a, 
a number of programs. Uh, uh, Project 159 is to organize each one of the counties for the Republican Party. We at one point had all but six of the 159 counties uh, with functioning Republican Party organizations. That's declined to about 130. Most of those counties are counties that Brian Kemp and Donald Trump carried. So we know that there are Republicans there. They just have not been organized. And so there'll be a big push in the first few months of my administration to get each of these county parties organized. And we've unveiled a plan that assigns each of our county party organizations uh, goals to get ready for 2020 so that they don't just exist on paper. They're actually working toward uh, goals that will help us uh, be ready for uh, for 2020. Looking across the aisle to your Democratic counterparts, you know, what would you say is something that they've done right that you'd like to take a page out of their book to make sure that you're on the same footing? Well, what I've noticed is that they're doing many of the same things that we did when we were in the minority. I got my start in politics as the executive director of the Georgia Republican Party in the early 1990s when there were virtually no Republican elected officials in the state. And we um, we ran candidates for every office, even offices that we didn't think that we could uh, win, and organized in ways that I'm now seeing the the Democrats uh, organize against us. We can't remain on the defensive. We've got to go back on the offensive and answer them. We're now about six months into Brian Kemp's tenure as governor, and the first legislative session is in the books. How would you grade his performance in accomplishing his campaign policy goals? I'd give him an A. He, he passed his teacher pay raise that he talked about on the campaign trail. He passed a Medicaid waiver law, which will allow us to, to innovate our health care delivery uh, system. He's uh, made investments in school safety, which is important to uh, all Georgians, and improving the mental health services uh, for our students. I think that it was a this first session for him was a home run, and, and he deserves an A, if not an A+. Now, perhaps the most consequential piece of legislation to come out of this year's session is the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, which would effectively ban most abortions in Georgia after around the six-week mark. As we speak, there are groups organizing legal challenges to the law. Film studios who bring jobs and dollars to the state's economy say they could take future investments elsewhere. And lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are being targeted next fall over their vote on this bill. From your perspective, is all of the fallout over a bill that will likely be held up in the legal process for several years worth it? Abortion is obviously an issue that divides Americans. The Democratic Party has become radical on the question of abortion. In the 1990s, when Bill Clinton was president, the Democrats ran on the idea that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And they've dropped uh, the rare. I don't believe you'll see any film production companies pull out of Georgia. We've got one of the most robust uh, tax credit uh, programs of any state in the union. The entire film industry was created uh, during this Republican supermajority because of the tax credits that Republicans championed. In 2006, I think there was less than $100 million uh, being spent by the film industry in Georgia. I think that last year it was $2.7 billion being directly uh, spent, and that's almost entirely because of the tax policies. I don't believe that they can I don't believe that they I think you're seeing a lot of virtue signaling. They're saying that they might consider pulling out if 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 the courts don't join it. They're probably hoping that the courts do join it so they won't be called on any of this uh, uh, virtue signaling. But I think that in the end, uh, you um, none of these boycotts will materialize.
So we've seen a preview of some 2020 campaign messaging from Senator David Perdue, who has spoken out about the dangers of socialism and telling supporters if Democrats win Georgia, then they win the White House. But is stopping socialism going to be an effective message that will resonate here with voters in Georgia voting for their state House or Senate representative? I think that the Democratic Party has become radicalized, frankly, at every level. You know, Georgia was one of the was the last state in the union to re, to elect a Republican governor in 2002. And one of the reasons it was so hard for us uh, to do that was that the old Democratic Party was basically a center right pro-business party. Sam Nunn and Zell Miller and George Busby and Joe Frank Harris were were conservatives. They were in the mainstream of political thought. The Democrats that are trying to replace us are not center-right. They're not part of the mainstream. They are radicalized, and uh, they do advance policies that are socialistic in in orientation, and I don't think that the vast majority of Georgians uh, want that, and I do think that's a, a message that uh, is both authentic and will resonate. But is the socialism label going a bit too far in that categorization of some of the policies and the politicians? They're, they're openly embraced. I mean, Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. They've, they've, they've openly embraced the labels that we have long suspected represent their actual uh, thinking. Who are the people that the Georgia Republican Party needs to be targeting before November 2020? Are there new voters to be persuaded? There really are two groups of people. We've identified 50-some thousand people who have moved to Georgia that we believe are reliable Republican voters who are not yet registered to vote. And so we'll be reaching out to them through a variety of mechanisms between now and the end of the year to get them uh, registered. And then there's hundreds of thousands of Georgians who, who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 who did not show up in 2018. And we'll be doing everything in our power to turn them out, not just for the president, but for every Republican up and down the ticket. That was Georgia Republican Party Chair David Schaefer speaking with Stephen Fowler. You'll be able to find that conversation later at gpbnews.org, where you can also check out Leah Fleming's interview with Democratic Party Chair Nikema Williams. Well, now that we've heard from leaders of both major political parties in Georgia, let's get a sense of what their priorities mean for the next year and a half in Georgia politics. Both vow to knock on more doors, reach more voters, and win more seats. But need we say only one of those two parties will succeed in that goal on Election Day. Our political reporter Stephen Fowler is back with us to talk about what we just heard and what the future looks like for the average Georgia voter. Stephen, you interviewed one party chair, heard the other. What's the biggest takeaway for you from those conversations? Let's start with Chair Williams. Well, what we see in Virginia is a continuation of the 2018 uh, legislative cycle and the gubernatorial election. The Democrats have really built out their infrastructure across parts of the state in Democratic strongholds and in places where you'd really be hard-pressed to find Democrats. And that's only going to continue uh, based on what she said about the initiatives that they have. They have the magic number in mind to take back the House, and they're going to target those seats as well as other races across the state. And they're going to be invigorated after that 2018 close election loss with Stacey Abrams and other things that you've seen all of these candidates jumping into these races in Georgia's 7th District to say, we're competitive. We can do this. So big initiatives. What did you hear from Republican Chair Schaefer? What's your takeaway? 
Well, what I'm hearing from him is that the Republican Party is kind of getting off its laurels to try and counter this energy from the Democrats. David Schaefer said, you know, I was a Republican uh, executive when Republicans didn't exist in the state, and we were doing all of these things, and now I see that with these Democrats. So he knows firsthand what type of energy, what type of uh, tenacity is going to be put out by the Democrats, and he says we're going to try to match that. Well, Senator Williams gave Brian Kemp's first session an F. David Schaefer gave him an A. What would it take to shift these answers at all during the next legislative session? Well, Governor Kemp's signature accomplishments that he's touted from this session are health care and education. So the question is, will he continue to make inroads with health care? The Democrats want Medicaid expansion. He's seeking a Medicaid waiver. But there are other medical and health care related things like maternal mortality that he could end up appeasing Democrats and Republicans, and continuing to work with education could be something that maybe it could lift it up to a D for the Democrats. Now, the governor did say, you know, his staff has said that he got about 95% of his wish list in this first year. So then that begs the question, what's he going to do next year? There's going to be a little bit more pushback. It's going to be a little bit harder. There's going to be a little more campaign jockeying. So he may lose out on some of the uh, shininess from the Republican side. That A plus or an A may go down to a B for bargaining to get things done across the political aisle. And the last thing that we're going to have to watch is the fallout from the abortion bill, whether it takes effect January 1st, whether it goes through the legal process and all of the Hollywood hullabaloo on whether the bill is going to change Georgia's economy. And that is, of course, one of the big stories here. The Life Act, the Georgia abortion ban set to go into effect on January the 1st. Although last week the ACLU announced the context of its lawsuit, both leaders discussed the topic of a Hollywood exodus or boycott. What do their respective stances tell you? Well, David Schaefer said he called it virtue signaling. He says that the Hollywood studios and companies aren't going to go anywhere. The tax breaks are nice. The infrastructure's here. The people's here. And that ultimately, you know, they're going to hope that the courts gum it up or halt it from happening so that then they can say, hey, we're against this bill, but they get to keep the tax breaks. And on the Democratic side, Nikema Williams, Stacey Abrams, other leading Democrats have said no these companies need to stay and fight. They need to invest in the people politically like they have financially. And if they don't like the bill, they need to stay here and vote in the elections to try to change things. Right. Well, ahead of the 2018 gubernatorial election, you went to the state Democratic Party convention. Then Executive Director Rebecca DeHart said 2018 campaign is going to represent the party's biggest efforts. Let's hear. We are organizing in areas that we've never been in. We are doubling down in areas where we know there are more votes. We are knocking on more doors. We are making more calls. We are sending more texts. We are having more volunteers coming out and putting their blood, sweat, and tears into this campaign than we ever have before. Now, Stephen, we're looking at 2020, making more calls, sending more texts, getting that ground game going. How is it possible for this election to be even bigger or more immersive for the Georgia voter? Well, you know, Virginia, first off, just under 60 percent of the registered voters in Georgia cast a ballot last November. So there's a huge audience of people that didn't vote that could vote this time. David Schaefer said that the big database that they have that they've uh, reinvigorated and revitalized uh, say that they show 
about half a million people who voted for President Trump in 2016 but sat out in last November's election. And he said that there are about 50,000 Republican voters that moved into Georgia since the last election that they know they can target. So mobilization is the name of the game. The ideology and uh, what they stand for is obviously going to matter. But the main thing is going to be getting out the vote and those people that they know support them but maybe for whatever reason, have not voted. But that part of that equation is people. You have to have volunteers knocking on doors, staffing them, training them. Georgia's become a hotbed of training for campaigners of all stripes. What does that mean for elections? Well, you know, nationally, the Democrats, I've looked to what Stacey Abrams did and the Georgia Democrats did in that campaign. Uh, they brought a bunch of college-age kids into town down to Macon to train them and send them back to their colleges and back to their hometowns to become organizers there locally. And the Republicans are planning on building up their infrastructure in all 159 counties. You heard David Schaefer say earlier that there are plenty of counties that Kemp and Trump won that they don't have a official party apparatus. So, you know, they've got to build up that infrastructure. And so there's going to be a lot of people out there knocking on doors, making stump speeches, raising money, different things like that. And so what you see is other states nationally, both Republican and Democratic people, are paying attention to how Georgia runs its campaigns. Well, for the listeners sitting at home or at work or driving down the road, how are things going to change for them in the coming months? Get a bigger mailbox. <laughs> Expect more ads, more TV ads, more digital ads, more social media ads. Expect more in-person contact. Somebody's going to come knock on your door. Maybe they'll knock on your door twice. Expect more of the local level officials, you know, city, county, even state house and senate. Expect more attention from them as they benefit from the top-down layers of the organization from like state and national parties, the local level officials will be vying for your attention and harness that because those are the ones that are going to be uh, directly affecting your life. So there's going to be a lot of things to pay attention to to understand what you're voting for next November. Beyond that, at the consumer or voter level, let's look at the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision allowing political gerrymandering, finding that it is not unconstitutional. The court said it's beyond their jurisdiction to rule on the issue. How will that factor into the next couple of months of campaigning and politicking? Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Local elections matter. The state House and the state Senate seats are super important because the House is going to be the ones drawing the districts that they currently have and uh, readjusting them based on things. And then nationally, you'll have your U.S. House districts redrawn depending on how the census holds out and who's in control and who's in power. And that directly affects your life, the resources that your community gets, the laws that affect how your day-to-day -day life works. And so another interesting Supreme Court decision is the census question, uh, whether or not the citizenship question is going to be on the census. If that were to have taken effect, it could undercount certain populations in Georgia, which means less money, less resources, eventually maybe one less congressional seat. But, you know, Virginia, I'm going to end on a positive note. It is perhaps the greatest time to cover and participate in Georgia politics because of how fresh and exciting things are. And the message that I want to leave you with is get involved, pay attention, and ask lots of questions because there's lots of answers out there. And stay tuned to GPB. That's that's correct. GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler covers all things politics for us on GPB News, also at gpbnews.org. Coming up, reporters have been covering the struggle for equality for decades, many within their own profession. We're going to hear about a new documentary, Black and Reporting, the struggle behind the lens. 
I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Lorenzo Lowe Jelks joined WSV-TV as a reporter 52 years ago this summer, viewers didn't actually see him. Meanwhile, the workers are standing pat. They seem to be saying, No union, no way. For making, this is Lowe Jelks, WSV News. Jelks's voice was there, his name projected on the screen, but no face, no gold dome nor street scene in the background. It took a concerted and organized effort to get African-American journalists in front of the camera on Atlanta television news. After Jelks came Jocelyn Dorsey, who became the first black daytime news anchor on an Atlanta station. Monica Kaufman Pearson arrived at WSB three years later, the first woman and first black evening news anchor. Those trail Blazing journalists are among the subjects of a new documentary called Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. Also featured, former WSB reporter Walt Elder, a pioneer in morning headline news. The fact remains that housing discrimination is still prevalent. The question now being asked by those who are mostly discriminated against is, whose responsibility is it to solve this problem? It's generally been left up to the federal government. And Walt Elder joins me now in the studio. A hearty welcome to you, sir. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for being here. And from behind the camera, we have Tamara Wilson. She wrote, directed, and produced the documentary. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Well, the story that gets told in this film, in this documentary, is of people who, like the late civil rights activist Lonnie King, they were pushing Uh, Lonnie King reflects in the film about asking the FCC to withhold broadcast licenses of Atlanta's major stations until they open the door to black talent. He then came back to Atlanta and met with representatives of these outlets in January of 1970 and made the case. Here's a clip from the film. In Atlanta, there is no excuse, in my opinion, for not finding qualifiable blacks, whether they're on the air or whether they're behind the camera. I don't think we have to have a genius to run that camera over there. And I'm sure that we've got a lot of English majors in this city who've graduated from these six colleges who can be, who can be just as good as Aubrey Morris over here or some of the other guys. But they need the opportunity. And the only way that we're going to- Tamara, how instrumental was this case? Lonnie Key managed to put together a group of people to lead the task. And so he was able to help others you know, like the Jocelyn Dorsleys, the Monica Pearsons, to get into the business. And also behind the scenes. I'm, I'm behind the scenes, so people don't know how much power a producer has in bringing different types of stories to the stations and the way that those stories are reported. He was speaking to the media elite, and he said that there was definitely some resistance. People stood up and said, who are you to tell us what to do? But some, like Don Elliott Heald, let him use the conference room for the meeting. Was this a market decision? Had the time come? You know, if it wasn't for him, I mean, he he was in charge, and he, he was the one to allow people to come in. He knew it was time. Why not start here in Atlanta? Well, Walt, I'm wondering for you, when you saw people on the street who saw you on television, what was what was the response of people who finally saw a face that looked like them on TV? Oh, they were very, very happy. Even white people. It was a novelty as well as it being a historic change uh, that was taking place uh, in Atlanta. Don Elliott Hill was a visionary. 
I went from a street reporter to the public affairs director at Channel 2. It was all because of him. All along the way, any time I had an idea about something, he signed it. What did you know about WSB-TV when that general manager offered you a job? I knew that it was the number one station in Atlanta and in the Southeast. Lorenzo Jeltz was my hero. Hmm. He's good, and it was an honor to work with him. You're deeply moved when you're talking about this. We see that in the documentary. What is it, what's it, what is it that's getting stirred in you? It was a different time. Yeah. It was some serious problems back then. And to overcome those problems took a lot of nerve. I thought a journalist has a serious commitment to the community he serves because you have to tell that story. Mm. I'm speaking with Walt Elder, former WSB-TV reporter, the first African-American on Atlanta Morning Headline News. He and his trailblazing colleagues are subjects of a new documentary. It's called Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. And filmmaker, writer, producer, director, uh, Tamara Wilson is also with us in the studio. Well, let's hear a little bit. This is Monica Pearson, now co-host of GPB's A Seat at the Table, reflecting on her experiences as a black woman anchor at WSB. I had black people complaining because I wasn't black enough, meaning they wanted me with my afro out to here, big earrings here, and fist in the air. And then there were those who were not happy because I was not known here. Who was this woman? And then you had white people who just felt it was the spot for white men, and no woman should be on the air in the 6 o'clock news, whether she's black or white. And then there were those people who said, I do not want a black woman for you, Tamara, this is, you know, the not enoughness, you know, I'm not black enough, I'm not white enough. It feels like that's something I heard over and over again from people. Is it me? Is it my race? Is it me as a person? Is it my work? What, what do you think's going on there? It was very important for me to put that statement in from Monica, from her interview, because it is an ongoing thing for many people who are not white to be true, but also to report the news or to deliver these stories the way they're supposed to be. And that's all we're trying to do. But you get criticized on both sides, and sometimes it can be a little difficult, but just listening to their stories and how they just rose above it Mm -hmm. and kept going. And like I said, there are the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. People, especially young people, can learn that these are the things that have happened There may be similar things that are happening today, but in a different way. But, you know, there's ways you can handle it. There's ways you can rise above it. There's ways that you can address it, if you will, to the people that are actually doing it to you. Well, what role was having African-Americans in the media playing that white-only media did not? One, a lot of our stories weren't being told. And if they were told, they were told in a not-so-glamorous way, or they only told the negative things. But when you're only telling the bad things in one community, people see to see them that way, that they're savages or they're killers or they're murderers or they have this disease or what have you. So when you bring in other people um, of different races to tell these various stories, you get a different take on it and you will find some positive things. Mm. I've been wondering for you, Walt, looking back at yourself then, do you feel like, ah, I, you know, I should have been more radical. I should have pushed harder or, or do you, you know, do you feel at peace with that? 
there are ways you can be radical. But if you want a job and you want to use that outlet, I used to do a lot of stories that never would have been done if I didn't do the story. There are different ways to be radical, but you can't be radical and make your and let your enemies win. So you were stealthily getting your message across. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was a strategy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Without a doubt. For instance, now, a lot of people may not like what I'm saying, but the first real anchors, so to speak, were black women. And I think, well, I know that that was a strategic move on the part of the powers that be because they knew that they would be more acceptable, even though what Monica said was quite true, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time. But they were less threatening, is that what you mean? Yes, without a doubt. If you look at the, the news now, you don't have many black, uh, black male anchors. Like making a television report, you're creating a narrative arc, right? You're, you've got a beginning, middle, and an end. Exactly. And there's, there's a, you know, your third act, if you will, is this dramatic kind of retelling of things that have happened to reporters while in the field. There is um, a, just a chilling account by Jocelyn Dorsey. She had to cover a campaign event for J.B. Stoner. This was a white supremacist, later convicted of bombing a church, by the way, who ran for governor of Georgia in 1970. Let's hear a little bit of that story. It was on the weekend, and there weren't any other reporters but me. And the assignment editor said, I hate to tell you this, but J.B. Stoner is announcing for governor and we need to have you cover his announcement. It's an FCC requirement. I mean, they went through all this explanation. And I'm like, why are you going through all this explanation? Marietta is much more centrally located than Savannah. I don't uh, care to live in the city of Atlanta because the blacks have taken it over and it's no longer safe for anybody to live in Atlanta. I had no idea what I was walking into. There were banners all over the wall that said, kill the N word, and I was the only black person in there. And as soon as I walked in, the crowd just started roaring, you know, get her out of here, and shouting obscenities. I was scared. I remember a woman saying, you know, you need to get her out of here. We're gonna get sickle cell anemia. And I started laughing because I couldn't believe the ignorance, and that was the wrong thing to do. I mean, Walt, did you ever feel threatened when you were covering stories? White people were not used to seeing, quote unquote, intelligent black people. You know, you'd say, hello, Megan, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Well, who the hell do you think you are? And, you know, (laughs) I'm a reporter with Channel 2, and I'm trying to give you an opportunity to present your wonderful story, huh? (laughs) So you had to play them. In some places that you went into, you could tell as you was driving up, you needed to turn around. What, like outside of Atlanta or in the city? Mostly outside of Atlanta, but believe me, Atlanta was just as racist in its own way, you know. and you could tell when you're talking to somebody how all of a sudden their eyes get big, they start getting red. <laughs> you say to yourself, this person is transforming into something that he may not be able to control himself. So 
When I'd go into a story, I'd tell the cameraman, turn the camera on. Keep it on all the time. Because the thing was, is I wanted to be, if you couldn't see it, I want you to hear it. What we were being, what we were up against sometimes. And those things would be put in stories and sometimes people wouldn't believe it. Is that tomorrow something that you saw over and over again? Yeah, it just it just cut deep. Because I don't know, I was, I was telling them while earlier, I'm like, you guys were built differently. I would have ran out there so quick. I just couldn't imagine being put in that situation. They, you tough. all she were. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you all were. Can you, can you own that, Walt? Right. Well, we had a job to do. Somebody had to do it. Are you just being humble, or is this too too hard to touch? Well, some of it is, but uh, I, I think I just, thought it was a great opportunity. Just having you out in the field is vulnerable, right? Um, just like Emmanuel um, said, Hall said, it's like you never know when a brick's going to be flying your way, just for no reason. You had nothing to do with the story, just mean people out there. So for me, Mr. Elder, I what? bow down. I bow down to you. I mean, it's all kinds of things. You know, I come from a different time, you know. So uh, I was shot at two times growing up in Atlanta. And I never thought I would end up living here. But I traveled around the country, around the world, and I decided to come back home, and things were changing. Atlanta was very cliquish. I mean, seriously cliquish, you know. If you didn't come from a certain background and things that I thought held Atlanta back still do, you know, but for the most part, uh, Atlanta was a unique uh, southern city. So what does it mean for you to share these kind of stories to the audience today? I think people need to know where things come from. They need to have a relationship to the people that did it, if they can, if they have that opportunity. And I think what Tomorrow and the uh, Atlanta Associate of Black Journalists has done is say, if you don't know how this started, go to a black school somewhere, watch this documentary, listen to these people. This will give you some sort of a feeling for it. The thing that gets me about Low Jelks, I always loved his delivery and his voice. Tell me, can you do a Low Jelks imitation? No, <laughs> no. It's so smooth, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to work with him. Hey, he taught me a lot when I went, because, you know, um, a lot of stuff you had to learn on your own. Tomorrow, however, you are now a production manager and producer at CNN. Mm-hmm. Now, CNN has come under some criticism for not having people on air who reflect its viewership uh, as well as they should. So why is it important now that people of color, producers, anchors, writers... Why then? Why now? Why not? We're here. We know what we're doing. We know how to tell the stories fairly. Society should want to see different people on air. Um, And it's not just the organization itself, but it's the people who are watching it. And, And like I said, the power of producer, we help bring stories to our viewers. And a producer is in charge. It's not all about who's on the air. It's really more about who's behind the scenes. I write the scripts for the part, the talent that I'm working for. I'm setting up the shoots and everything, and I know what kind of tone I want to set. 
but you don't want to make anyone upset. And it was very important for me to carefully tell their stories. But the things that happened, happened. The way you felt, that's how you felt. A lot of our history is, is getting lost or just not being taught. This was an opportunity for me to share some of the struggles that have happened. There are different ones today, but we can overcome, so to speak. I know that's cliche, but... How about shall? Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tamara Wilson, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Tamara wrote, produced, and directed the new documentary, Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. And Walt Elder, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Walt, former WSB-TV reporter featured in the documentary. There's a link to watch the documentary at gpbnews.org. You won't regret it. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.